Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with my mentor and now partner, Dr. Bradley, who's the clinical professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and the longtime head team physician for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Dr. James Bradley is a special person in my life. He operated on my shoulder when I was 17 years old, uh, and I was lucky enough to shadow him and do research with him and really got into the field uh, solely because of him. So I'm certainly thankful to continue to learn from him and and uh, work with him. I wanted to speak with Dr. Bradley today about our infographic, which I was, again, lucky enough to be involved in uh, with, Ox, uh, with also Dr. Chris Kading titled Management of Patellar Tendinopathy, which is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Bradley, and thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. So tell us, you know, this is kind of a unique topic. How did you interest, get interested in patellar tendinopathy to begin with? Well, the problem was with the, the athletes just choosing one sport and not going through different sports. We were having like a mini epidemic of uh, proximal tendinopathy. And then there's no there was no real good uh, grading systems or there was no good guidance or flow charts to, you know, treat it. So we thought it was time for us to uh, do that. I, we brought Dr. Kading in with us. Who, he and I are very similar treatment patterns. He's the head team physician for Ohio State University. So we we said together, we'll put our heads together and see if we can come out with a good scheme. Yeah, you mentioned that a lot of it's single sport specialization. Tell us a little bit more about the type of patients you typically see with this. Are they um, certain basketball players or certain types of athletes? And yeah. yeah, typically overuse repetitive explosive activities. I mean, 55% of elite uh, male basketball players have some form of tendinopathy. So it, it's it's very common. Yeah, I think one thing is that if you're not looking for it, maybe you don't see it. I've seen quite a few people since you've taught me about this that have been pushed around for a year or two and never really been diagnosed. You know, you start sometimes with this pathology with tendinopathy and maybe progresses to a partial tear or maybe there are different pathologies. But tell us, do you treat those differently with patients with tears versus tendinopathy? Oh, yeah. Typically, athletes continue to play with mild to moderate symptoms of tendinopathy, which can be aggravated. Or then they can lead to partial tears, like a, a, a continuum. Um, but then when the micro tears, that's 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 a micro injury to the tendon fiber. You get mucinous degeneration. You get necrosis. You get loss of transitional fiber cartilage. And then there's commonly there's not a lot of inflammation. There's lack of inflammation when you get there. Yeah, so that's why we call it tendinopathy instead of tendonitis. It's a good point. Tell us a little bit about the treatment options for these folks and how you approach them. Well, actually, the, the the literature is limited. I mean, non-operative, we use uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. We use some form of uh, Chopat bracing. We use eccentric PT. Uh, there's a 15-year outcome study uh, that 33 or 53% uh, of the people that were, were in that retired from their sport. I mean, so it's not it's not benign. Um, we use extracorporeal shock, which is we use ortho gold. Uh, there's one study. Um, out in the literature with 33 patients, um, and they they were significant improvement versus controls at one year, and that was in 2013. Then what happens after that? The next phase is going to injection. So, platelet-rich plasma. We went to and we started with leukocyte poor, and then we felt that we needed to aggravate the tendon more by increasing the number of platelets and the number of monocytes. So then we used a new system that comes out 
uh, that that will allow us to do that to try to to try to get the engine started, if you were. I didn't think poor was enough. Um, then what happens is the next phase is when the these people when they when the when it, it's torn and the body's trying to heal it, these neo vessels grow in from the fat pad, and along with them comes the 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 uh, nerve fibers, the neo nerve fibers that come with them. So we have a technique by which um, you can lay them down. You can take a spinal or a, a, a 14 gauge needle and slide underneath their patella and scrape that away under ultrasound sterilely and then inject platelet rich plasma. I, I've had some good experience with that. And I've had some good experience with that with high level professional athletes, both in the National uh, Baseball League and um, in the uh, NFL or the Major League Baseball League in the NFL. And then finally, it's surgical de debridement, right? So some people like to uh, do it arthroscopic. I do not. Uh, Dr. Katie and I both agree that we make an incision over the top of it, and we basically take out the bad tissue, including part of the bone, and then try to force it to heal. Then we're looking at a large study that we're going to combine between uh, our group and uh, OSU. Yeah, tell us a little bit about how you repair those. It sounds like you take a wedge out and do you expose the bone to have some good healing elements, the bone marrow, like we almost talk about meniscus repairs, and do you put anchors in, and what types of sutures? Do you have preferences regarding those? Yeah, so I always, I make it like, um, I take a five millimeter wedge of bone usually uh, on either side and in the top, so it's, a, it's like a little cube of bone. And I'll make it probably five millimeters or so, or maybe a little wider, like we're gonna take a patellar tendon graft, but not as long. And then it's like an upside down Christmas tree uh, incision. So I, I make the, uh, a triangle starting the base being at the base of the patella and then a then down into a triangle into a point. And then the important thing is you, you, you leave that bone out. You just take a, a portion out, not the full thickness of the patella. And then you take tiny little retractors and lift up the patellar tendon, make sure you get the diseased tendon under those areas and you scrape all the fat away. I mean, the fat's going to be uh, adhesed to the bottom of the tendon on either side. Then what I do is I take simple vicral sutures, interrupted inverted sutures, uh, number ones, and I close the tendon. And I leave the bone alone. I don't put the bone back in. Uh, sometimes if it's a big one, I'll have to use anchors on either side, but that's that's rare. I would imagine that some of these, like you mentioned, they don't look too unhealthy when you look at the anterior surface of the tendon, but probably a big pearl is making sure you get underneath it and make sure you get that poor tendon underneath. Is that a pearl you would that's say is important? That's a very good pearl. And I use those little hand, little tiny hand retractors so I can I don't hurt the tendon. I just I just uh, invert it a little or evert it a little bit and make sure I get all that diseased tissue out of the bottom of that. Have you had pretty good outcomes with your uh, surgeries that you found? There's really no high quality comparative studies, uh, and, and um, some of them have. There's no, there was no difference in the 2013 um, international study that was done in, in uh, KSSTA. Uh, there's a systematic review by uh, yourself and our other partner, um, uh, our other uh, fellow Andy Sheehan. Um, in 2023, they had you had. There were, you, you, you reviewed uh, in the systematic review, 40 studies, return to sport was 88.4%, return to the same level sport was 76.6, and the, the surgeries definitely improved their PROs. Yeah, so it seems like it's a good outcome study. I think, you know, there haven't been good studies like you alluded to comparing open versus arthroscopic. So that 2013 study looked at just debridement arthroscopically versus open, and um, we don't 
know the difference, but certainly it makes sense to me about your your plan there. Tell us about um, your thoughts about just injections with PRP in general. Do you think the scraping really makes the difference? Are you ever just injecting PRP? No, I I, th- I think it works. There's there's an AJSM study from 2019. Um, that's Andriolo, I believe it was. Uh, and it showed promising results in a systematic review and meta-analysis. I mean, he took 70 studies, uh, 2,530 patients. Eccentrics uh, helped the most in the short term, less than six months. But multiple PRP injections did best uh, greater than six months. Extra, extracorporeal shock waves and eccentric uh, exercises were the most helpful. Um, so there's another prospected double-blind study by uh, Rodas uh, out of uh, in 2021 out of AJSM, and it was a prospected double-blind randomized controlled trial of leukocypore versus BMAC. Both helped. Um, but the the tendon looked more normal with uh, bone marrow concentrate. Yeah, so there's some pretty good studies out there, but certainly not robust literature. And and like you said, that seems like PRP in the long term, almost like epicondylitis, um, maybe is helpful longer term. And eccentrics and um, the shock wave can be helpful too. It's a great point. You know the. The small series about patellar tendon scraping and PRP, I find really interesting. Tell us how you uh, thought about that or started doing that. And it really seems like you think that those blood vessels are maybe a big pain generator. Tell us your thoughts about that. So if you look at the Achilles tendon literature, there's some there's some some fairly good papers that they scrape the, you know, the avincula off the off the Achilles tendon. Um, and we use that and extrapolated that to this. There, there are very few studies with this patellar scraping, but I, I can tell you what I, what I believe that happens is I believe the body tries to heal it through the fat pad. The vessels come in and the nerves come with them. And if you can scrape those off and put a, put some platelet-rich plasma back there uh, to keep it off, that you know we've been really happy with that. And I'm, I'm talking about some high-level players. Yeah, all different levels. It's, I think, a, a great... Um portion in your armamentarium that's not super uh, invasive. Tell us, you know, one thing you mentioned at the beginning were people that you decided to go ahead with surgery. Tell us um, which patients you typically see where, are there certain patients where you say, well, this person's going to need surgery eventually that are going to fail non-operative treatment? Yeah. So I use two things from Chris Ahmad's paper back in 2020 in AJSM. So he had he had a, a very good study, but basically what I use it if, once it passes fifty percent on the lateral of the MRI uh, sagittal, and once it once it gets eleven point five millimeters on the first axial cut of the um, distal pole of patella. So as soon as you get into the tendon, once that gets about eleven point five, you know, in his group, most of those had to go to surgery. So when I see that, I actually just saw two today. When I see that. You know, I'm I I will push a little more for surgery because I don't want it to get too big. That's the problem. So I've had fairly good luck um, when it gets about that size doing that little technique we do by opening them up and and getting rid of the bad tendon and then closing them down again and leaving the bone open. Yeah, probably like the rotator cuff, a bigger a bigger tear you would think would mm-hmm. probably lead to uh, poor outcomes. So yeah, I think a lot of exciting knowledge here. I just wanted to ask you if you have any closing thoughts about this. I think it's you know, not the sexiest topic, but a common topic that we miss a lot. And uh, I know you and Dr. Kading are, are working on this. 
So my feeling on that is that's my go-to at the end. Um, and I'm not really an arthroscopic guy taking away tendon and leaving a hole. That, to me, doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I, I, I want to repair the tendon. Yeah, I think it's certainly reassuring that data that you spoke to us about. Thank you so much. I know you're such a busy guy and it's the middle of the NFL season. Appreciate you taking the time with us today. And I'm honored to continue to learn from you. And I'm sure all the listeners will be really excited to hear all these pearls, which is something we don't talk quite as much about. So thanks for your time and for joining us today. Well, thank you. I, I think the study with, that um, Chris, Katie, and I are going to do to put together um, with your help, uh, I think that's going to answer a lot of these questions, be much more definitive um, in the long run. Right, about who needs Thanks, surgery yeah. and who doesn't. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Bradley's infographic titled Management of Patellar Tendinopathy is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at arthroscopyjournal.org. Thanks so much for joining us. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time. Thank you.